the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today on the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt, the president gives his summary statement on our open border. This is not all I can do. Just give me the power. I've asked for the very day I got it off. Speaker of the House Mike Johnson calls him out. It only happens if it's an orchestrated, intentional effort by the administration to do exactly that. While explaining why it matters so much. If you do not have sovereignty, you do not have a country. Congressman Jim Jordan summarizes the Biden plan. The Biden plan is to take American taxpayer dollars and use that to tear down border fence that was put up by Texas taxpayer dollars. Plus, three American soldiers are dead after a drone attack from Iranian proxies. Senator Tom Cotton. The only way to respond to this attack is devastating military retaliation against Iran's terrorist forces. And how we ought to view Iran. We have to view Iran as what it is, an evil enemy that cannot be placated. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Great to be with you. Catch my radio program each weekday morning live 6 to 9 a.m. Eastern Time and on demand 24-7. Learn more at HughHewitt.com. Follow me, please, on X at Hugh Hewitt. Follow this program there as well at Town Hall Review. Town Hall Review is part of the Salem Podcast Network. We'll begin here in the nation's capital with a look at the crisis on our southern border. The president this week made a brief but still very revealing statement on where he is on this border crisis, one that is without precedent in our nation's history. This is not all I can do. Just give me the power. I've asked for the very day I got in office. Give me the border patrol. Give me the people, give me the people, the judges. Give me the people who can stop this and make it work. Negotiations have been underway between Republicans and Democrats on a draft border security law in the Senate. I've been saying it again and again. If that bill does not produce a section that guarantees the rapid construction of a 900-mile wall along the passable areas of the U.S.-Mexico border, the bill will not and should not pass the House of Representatives. House Republicans seem to get this. Their leader, Speaker of the House Mike Johnson, has been strong and seems to be getting stronger in his messaging on this. In his first speech on the House floor, since taking the gavel, he made it clear what we need to do. While the Senate and the White House were negotiating a so-called border security deal, one Border Patrol official compared the situation this way. He said, what we're being asked to do right now is administer an open fire hydrant. He said, please convey to our friends in Washington, we don't need more buckets. We, We need to turn off the flow. And his metaphor explains the situation perfectly. Since President Biden and Alejandro Mayorkas assumed office, There have been more than 7 million encounters with illegal aliens just at our southern border alone. 35 of our 50 states, including my home state of Louisiana, don't have a population that large. Yet that's how many people have been apprehended in just the past three years. Among those who've been apprehended on the southern border, but between ports of entry, more than 300 individuals who are on our terror watch list. Terrorist watch list. The, The frightening question is, If so many terrorists were caught attempting to cross our borders, how many have entered undetected? 
we suspect it is a much higher number. Johnson highlighted the calculated negligence of President Biden and Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Where in the world is Secretary Mayorkas on all of this? He is the secretary of the Department of Homeland Security. It's his responsibility to prevent these harmful drugs from flowing into our country and to secure that border. And he's done nothing of the sort. As we've heard from Border Patrol agents, he's doing exactly the opposite. He's, he's handicapping law enforcement. He's limiting their ability to catch narcotics like fentanyl. He's making it virtually impossible. They say in their own words, and they told us down on the border at Eagle Pass, it's impossible to do the job that they were trained to do. Perhaps the secretary is busy identifying more people on, on the list that he can release on parole. Because just since fiscal year 2022, Secretary Mayorkas has released, released into the country more than 1.5 million aliens, just sent them out into the country on what they call parole. Remember, the Immigration and Nationality Act states very clearly that parole should only be used on a case-by-case basis and a temporary basis. But millions of illegals right now are being granted parole and spending many years in the United States before they're ever even expected to appear before a judge. Some of them are given a, a piece of paper that says, we'll see you in a decade. It's absurd. This mass parole is neither temporary nor selective. It is a clear violation of federal law, and it is dangerous, and it is subversive, and it's intentional. And to make matters worse, we've learned that the Biden administration is now simply, just simply releasing 85% of the illegals who come across that border right into the country. They're coming to a neighborhood near you. For reference, by the way, if you're watching the metrics, in 2013, the Obama administration, listen to this, the Obama administration detained 82% of illegal aliens. How do we go from detaining 82% to releasing 85%. It only happens if this is by design. It only happens if it's an orchestrated, intentional effort by the administration to do exactly that. And that is what the evidence shows. The speaker cited a letter he received from former top security officials. Last week, I received a letter from former top FBI intelligence officials, including the former assistant director of intelligence. In the letter, the signers said that America is facing a, quote, new and unfamiliar threat. As my colleagues know, you never want to hear our intelligence leaders speak about an unfamiliar threat. But these former FBI officials told us that we are suffering, quote, a soft invasion along our southern border. They're, they're stating what, it, what is obvious to all of us. They noted that we are experiencing a surge, listen to this, of military-aged single men who are pouring into our country over the southern border from adversarial nations, by the way, and and from terrorist regimes. When we were at Eagle Pass at the Del Rio sector in January, earlier January 3rd, with 64 House Republicans, they told us that between 60 to 70 percent of the people coming across the border right there at that epicenter are single adult males. They're military-aged. These are not huddled masses of families seeking refuge and asylum. These are people coming into our country to do only God knows what. And we are allowing it. The Biden administration is allowing it. And we've noted that they're coming from adversarial nations, from terrorist regions. We have no idea what they're planning. But in fiscal year 2023, Border Patrol encountered illegals from 170 different countries, including hundreds from Iran, Syria, thousands from Russia, tens of thousands who have come in from China. Tell me that's not dangerous. In this letter, law enforcement and intelligence leaders are warning us that we may very well suffer a preventable terrorist attack 
here on the homeland if we don't immediately secure that border and remove these dangerous terrorists from inside our borders. Johnson also looked at the long-term threat these porous open borders present. We are at a moment where we have to decide right now, as a Congress, as a people, we have to decide as the American people if we have borders or not. We have to decide if we believe in the rule of law or not. We have to decide if we're a sovereign nation or we're not. House Republicans do believe that America has borders and that we are a sovereign nation. We believe we must set limits on the number of immigrants who enter, obviously, and the American people have a say on immigration policy. Understanding who enters and enforcing our immigration laws are critical components to maintain a sovereign country. If you do not have sovereignty, you do not have a country. I also believe that border security is part of our solemn obligation to safeguard the well-being of our citizens and uphold the principles that define who we are as a nation. In no sense is border security somehow an act of hostility to neighboring countries. It's exactly the opposite, because a weak border weakens America, and a strong border is good for America, and a stronger America is good for everybody around the world, and everybody in this chamber should acknowledge that. And just as we lock our doors at night to protect our homes, we secure our borders to protect our homeland. And my friends, that is our sacred obligation. We in the House Republican Conference desperately want to protect our homeland because we want to ensure that all of our children and grandchildren can continue to enjoy the blessings of liberty that we have enjoyed and that we have loved and experienced. And and we can continue this grand experiment in self-governance that we began in 1776. But here's the question. I'll leave you with this. Does President Biden want that? Does President Biden believe in the rule of law? Does President Biden believe that we're a sovereign nation? Does he believe that Americans and not those from other countries should be put first? Every American citizen should be asking these questions of the president and helping us demand his answers. Congressman Jim Jordan, chairman of both the Judiciary Committee and the Subcommittee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government. Jordan also represents the good people of my old home state of Ohio, Jordan was a guest of Bob France on AM 1420, The Answer, in Cleveland. The Biden plan is to take American taxpayer dollars and use that to tear down border fence that was put up by Texas taxpayer dollars. Now, you talk about stupid. I don't know what could be dumber than that. This this is just sort of the epitome of how ridiculous their policy has been for what now? Three years and 11 days. I think think we're at – I did this yesterday in in a different hearing. I asked the assistant attorney general from Texas, I said, shouldn't we just call a timeout? Shouldn't we just say no more migrants can come in the country? No more migrants seeking asylum can enter the country. And, and he, he said, of course, that's what we should do. So I think that's the sense. No money can be used to process or release in the country any new migrants. No money can be used to tear down barriers that the Texas taxpayers have put up or the, or the Arizona taxpayers have put up. And the country gets it like, well, that's common sense. Why wouldn't we do that? That, to me, is what we put on the appropriation bills that are coming. And then the third step, of course, is an election in November where you got to put back in, in, the, in the White House the guy who actually had security on our border, uh, President Trump. Yeah, those are those are common sense uh, reforms. Um, I want to hit you with uh, something that we talked about at length during the Trump administration. We used it to discuss why Donald Trump is able to do what he is doing, and that is Title Eight, Section Two Twelve F of the U.S. Code, Immigration and Nationality Act, says that the president can indeed, uh, when he finds the entry of any aliens or class of aliens is detrimental to the interests of the United States, he may by proclamation, not legislation. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need Mitch McConnell or Chuck Schumer by. Pro- 
proclamation and for such period as he shall deem necessary suspend the entry of all aliens or any class of aliens or impose on any on the entry of any aliens any restrictions he deems to be appropriate. Congressman, why is Joe Biden lying to the American people saying he needs some sort of new special bill to do something that's already in U.S. code under his power? Because that's the Biden administration. They can't do anything right. I think I, I don't know if they could do anything right, even if they tried. Um, there's not one literally not one positive thing you can point to in this industry. And, and I, I know that sounds partisan and all that's conservative Republican Jim Jordan talking about the Dem. No, but, but run down the list. I, that's why I think this campaign is going to be so basic. We went from a secure border to no border, safe streets to record crime, $2 gas to $4 gas, stable prices to record inflation, all under Joe Biden. And, and all intentional by their stupid policies, particularly the border that we're talking about. And then we have weakness projected from the Oval Office, and that's what led to the tragedy where we lost three of our service members from Georgia this past week. Uh, this is what has led to Hamas and Hezbollah attack in Israel. This is why Russia went into Ukraine, because you got weakness in the Oval Office versus what you have with President Trump. I mean, it is you could go on, and, and not to mention the, the agencies being turned on the American people, the weaponization of, of the federal government against we the people. Coming up, three American soldiers are dead after a drone attack from Iranian proxies. The only way to respond to this attack is devastating military retaliation against Iran's terrorist forces. Senator Tom Cotton, when the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt returns in a moment. Stay with us. This is Dennis Prager, and now a truly exciting new benefit. My monthly online video get-together for PragerTopia Plus members only. For an hour each month, get an exclusive chance to ask me anything. I'll be answering your questions. I've never done this. Submit your questions for me at PragerTopia.com. This is our chance to connect like never before. Go to PragerTopia.com or click the banner at DennisPrager.com. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolf. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Welcome back to the Town Hall Review. I'm Hugh Hewitt. In the months since 10-7, Iranian-backed groups have attacked American forces, American forces, and our assets in the Middle East more than 170 times. Our retaliatory responses to date have not been serious, and they have clearly, clearly not deterred all those who are attacking Americans. Weakness is provocative. That line comes from the late Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld. And Rummy's line proves true here. A drone attack this past week on U.S. troops in Jordan killed three of our servicemen and wounded 34 more. I turned to a regular on my program, Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton. A grim day as the Iranians have killed three American troops, Sergeant William Jerome Rivers of Carrollton, Georgia, Specialist Kennedy Landon Sanders of Waycross, Georgia, and Specialist Brianna Alexandria Moffat 
of Savannah, Georgia. How should the United States respond, Senator? It is a grim indeed, Hugh. My condolences go out to the families and the loved ones of those three brave soldiers who were killed and the many dozens who were injured. And I think there's several of those still in critical condition today. Uh, may God kill them all and get them back to their battle buddies and their families promptly. Hugh, the only way to respond specifically to this attack is massive and devastating military retaliation against Iran's terrorist force forces throughout the region and in Iran itself. Only then will Iran realize that killing an American is an absolute red line that they can never cross again. Remember, Donald Trump in 2020 killed their terrorist mastermind, Qasem Soleimani, for targeting Americans just a few weeks earlier. In 1988, Ronald Reagan sank half of Iran's navy for mining the Persian Gulf, which didn't result in dead Americans, simply a damaged naval vessel and injured sailors. Unfortunately, this is the result of eight years of failed policy from Barack Obama and his understudy, Joe Biden. They have viewed Iran as a normal nation that has legitimate grievances against America, and if we would simply conciliate with them and appease them and grant them one-sided concessions, and Iran would pull in its horns, uh, begin behaving like a normal nation, and everything would be wonderful again in, in the Middle East. That's not the case. Iran has been a unappeasable enemy of the United States for 45 years. One of the first actions of the Ayatollahs was to take Americans hostages, hostage in our own embassy and hold them hostage for more than a year. We have to totally reverse the failed Obama-Biden policy of 11 years and view Iran as what it is, an evil enemy that cannot be placated, that can only, in the long run, be defeated. That should be the policy of the United States. Senator Cotton, Elliot Cohen wrote this morning, and it's quoted in news items. I want to read it to you. A different Iran policy would begin by making it clear that the United States was breaking with the failed approach of the past, that it understood Iran's implacable hostility and would henceforth act on the premise that the Iranian regime can never be conciliated. The United States would be characterized by vigorous covert as well as overt support for the strong currents in Iran that opposed the regime and periodically erupt in protest against it. It would respond to attacks by Iranian proxies on the United States and its allies with massive, disproportionate, and above all, lethal attacks. Above all, it would be and appear just as implacable towards Iran as Iran's leaders are towards the United States. In the absence of such a policy, Iran will go stronger and more malevolent, not less. Iran will expand and escalate war in the Middle East and beyond. Changing American policy is not a good choice but it is the best choice before the administration. Do you agree? Well, Hugh, I think it is a good choice to change American policy for the reasons I outlined. For 45 years, Iran has been implacably hostile to America. And 11 years of failed appeasement and conciliation by Barack Obama and Joe Biden has only emboldened Iran and invited more aggression. I know that many people like to cite him now, I think, over 160 strikes against American positions by Iran's proxy since the October 7th atrocity in Israel. Don't forget that there were almost 100 strikes against our positions before the October 7th atrocity, Hugh, since Joe Biden took office. And how many times had we responded? Something like four or five. That kind of weakness simply invites more aggression. Yet you still see the president and his mouthpieces at the White House podium or on background newspapers saying, like, well, we, we want to be measured. We have to be proportionate. We, we are afraid that we might see escalation. What we saw over the weekend here was escalation, Iran killing Americans. 
And there has to be massive consequences for that. And we should never be proportionate when an enemy attacks America. I agree with that. We should, but, be, we should be overwhelmingly disproportionate. And that, that in fact, deters. This is cut number 10, Senator Cotton, a montage of Vice President Harris, Secretary Blinken, and two Joe Bidens in the aftermath of 10-7 talking to Iran. Cut number 10. And what's the message to Iran? Don't. It was very important to send a very clear message to anyone who might seek to take advantage of the conflict in Gaza to threaten our personnel uh, here or anywhere else in the region. Don't do it. What is your message to Hezbollah and its backer, Iran? Don't. Don't, don't, don't. I've already delivered the message to Iran. They know not to do anything. They know not to do anything. Obviously not, Senator. Uh, how would you improve the messaging of the White House? Joe Biden is weak and pathetic and cowardly. You don't deter people like the Ayatollahs who govern Iran by going on TV and saying, don't, 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 don't. You do it by holding at risk and ultimately destroying or killing the things and the people they hold most dear, like the Revolutionary Guard shock troops. I, I'm confident that the Ayatollahs saw those videos and were laughing at Joe Biden. And every time, Hugh, every time since he took office, and especially since October 7th, when one of these militias in Iraq or Syria or rebel outlaws in Yemen shoot rockets and missiles at us, and we do nothing, or even if we only shoot back at those militias, again, Iran is laughing at us and high-fiving because they've had a decades-long strategy of using proxies throughout the Middle East to attack us so they can deny that it was them. And what do we do when we only attack Iranian proxy to you, we validate their proxy strategy. They look at that and say it's going great for us. Iran is very willing to fight to the last Arab against the United States. They don't Tell me about, about the target list, Senator. I've talked about the oil refineries, which has been much discussed over many years because that would cripple their economy. Ambassador Haley said minutes ago on this program, first step is put the sanctions back in place. Other people, like David Drucker, suggest hit the drone factories. They're all inside of Iran, though. They go after Iran. I'm not in favor of hitting more IRGC camps because that's, as you said, they'll fight to the last Arab. Yeah, so, so Hugh, there's no shortage of targets that we could take out that would send a message to the Ayatollahs. We certainly should target all IRGC camps and boats or ships. Um, and bases. But there's also other targets that would put immense pressure on Iran. For instance, you mentioned, as has often been mentioned, their refineries, because that is a massive bottleneck in the Iranian economy. One also that is controlled in no small part by the people that run the IRGC, who, all, who are also getting rich off of killing Americans. But there can be no doubt that America will not tolerate Iran or its proxies killing Americans or even targeting Americans anymore. There's a simple test here, Hugh, for what happens. Do the attacks stop? If they don't stop, then Joe Biden has once again failed. He has proven himself of being unworthy of being commander-in-chief for those young men and women that are in the Middle East, frankly, like sitting ducks, because he will not take the actions necessary, because he is cowardly, he is fearful, he broadcasts his fear all the time, and right now, he's starting to introduce his own re-election calculations into the lives of Americans in the Middle East, which is outrageous. Coming up, we'll turn to Israel's war in Gaza. The only way to get the hostages out is not to play Hamas's game. 
Avig Redigur, when the Town Hall Review returns in a moment. Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. In just 10 minutes, I can zip through 10 stories that help me start my day and help shape where I go with The Mike Gallagher Show. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's daybreakinsider.com. Welcome back to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. This weekend, the Israeli people are approaching the four-month anniversary of the horrific and barbaric attack from Hamas. The death toll from that attack was some 1,200, including women, the elderly, children, who died in a fashion that it's terrifying to think about. Hamas still holds upwards of 100 Israeli hostages and eight Americans among them. And Israel, in the war that began after 10-7, has lost more than 224 servicemen and women in the fighting in Gaza. For an update, I turn to Habib Reddy Gur, the very bright analyst of the Times of Israel. Is it going to get worse before it gets better? Is it going to be a long grind ahead? Is there a deal in the offing that you think will be reached? What is the general Israeli attitude? The general Israeli attitude is very simple. It's reflected in every poll for three months. Nothing really fundamental has changed. The general Israeli attitude is that Hamas has to be removed from Gaza. Hamas is making it extremely difficult to remove it from Gaza, and that is a terrible thing for Gaza. And nevertheless, Hamas will be removed from Gaza. There's a deal for our hostages. There are 136 hostages still in Hamas's hands, including children. And that is who Hamas is and who Hamas will forever be. And that is something that we are willing to trade um, some limited slowdown in the fighting. We're limited to trade. We're willing to trade some things that Hamas might want, the survival of its leadership so they can escape, things like that. We're not going to trade Hamas surviving in Gaza in exchange for those hostages. And that's where things have been, and that's where polls have been, and that's where the war effort really has been from day one. Now, this morning I ran through the headlines in the variety of American papers and in the Israeli papers. Hamas do in Cairo for hostage talks. Uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu rules out ceasefire, mass prisoner releases. In other words, there's lots of speculation about what's going on. But as far as I can tell, Hamas has demanded a complete end of the war, so there isn't really a negotiation going on. Yeah, that's what it demanded last time as well. In fact, at the very first week of the war, it demanded not starting the war in exchange for hostage release. Uh, It wanted to give us one or two a week um, for years so that we wouldn't start the war. To remove it from Gaza, we did. Um, there was a decision made early on, back in October, by the Israeli High Command, uh, led by the Defense Minister Yoav Gallant, that the only way to get the hostages out is not to play Hamas's game, because Hamas will hold on to them for as long as they're useful. And so, what's important is to make them less useful. And you do that by pushing Hamas militarily, pushing them so uh, powerfully and 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 quickly that the only way they survive, the only way they they get a little bit of respite, a few days of quiet, is by releasing large numbers of hostages. That policy has already been vindicated massively in the last hostage release where we got 90 Israelis and another uh, roughly 40 uh, non-Israelis out in exchange for seven days of quiet. Israel is willing to have that again, obviously. They want to charge more this time because some of the hostages are soldiers and some of the hostages, you know, and and, um, Hamas also has to justify the sheer devastation it has brought on Gaza. 
to Palestinians, to the Palestinian story. And so their price is very high. Israel will not stop the war. That is not something Israel is going to give. It is something Hamas is starting to demand. Last time it took about a month to get Hamas down off that tree. It might take a month to get them off that tree again. Now, will Israel accept a deal that releases everyone except young men? I don't know. Uh, the, the, one of the dividing lines, um, that one of the decisions that really have to be made is, do you agree to release um, murderers? People who have killed Jews, have killed children. Do you agree to release who, who are in Israeli prisons, who are part of the Hamas list of people demanded to be released? Um, who do you agree to release? How do you agree to release them? Where do they go? That's all part of the story. Uh, it's extremely unlikely that Hamas will give us all the hostages, because why Why would the leadership of Hamas, that is now hiding beneath some parts of Khan Yunus or in the southernmost Gazan city of Rafah, why would they release the last insurance they have to survive, the last negotiating um, card they have to survive at the end of the war? So, you know, we're talking about part, some of ours in exchange for some of theirs, and you know, and, and maybe some delay of the fighting in some way. Hamas right now is demanding immense things that are absolutely impossible for Israeli governments politically to, to give them. The Israelis will not accept an end to the war with Hamas in power. And so as long as that's the Hamas demand, there won't be a hostage exchange. Yeah, I really don't believe we're going to see one. But one of the things I do believe between the lines is that Hamas is trying to keep back young Israeli women who are also in the IDF or served in the IDF. And I suspect they don't want to release them because of the way that they have been abused. Do you share that suspicion? That's a doozy, right? Um, that is a um, that is a fear uh, shared by the Israeli intelligence services. Um, and it is not just Israeli soldiers. Uh, it's not just Israeli female soldiers. It's, it's just young Israeli women, including uh, Muslim women. And so the fear for these women, the fear for women Hamas isn't eager to release, is that they are in a shape that will, that will not make Hamas look good on the international stage, put it that way. Coming up. Everybody understood that the tunnels were being dug with aid money and aid supplies and aid concrete. More with Habib Reitiger when the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt returns in a moment. John Solomon provides exclusive reporting and newsmaker interviews on John Solomon Reports on the Salem Podcast Network. We broke this story because we got the documents early. They put out this new information, and it affirms our reporting that this Democrat donor gave about $5 million or more in assistance to Hunter Biden, basically paid off his bills. Subscribe to John Solomon Reports today on Apple, Spotify, Google, Rumble, or at SalemPodcastNetwork.com. Welcome back to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. There is a sense in which Israel's war in Gaza is just another chapter in a long series of wars and skirmishes that began with the war for Jewish survival when the Jewish state was established in 1948. But in another sense, this war is entirely different. It's because of the scale of the atrocities. The barbarism directed at civilians is unprecedented, but so too is the degree to which Hamas has dug into Gaza. That makes it very costly. Most of Israeli forces and the civilians who Hamas uses as human shields. This is different. Let's pick up on my conversation with Aviv Redegur of the Times of Israel. Well, I remember when ISIS seized the 
an, an ethnic minority, Hazari. Uh, they seized the Hazari women, made them sex slaves, and then executed the them. The Hazidi, yeah. yeah. Yeah, the Hazidi. So is that what we're worried about? Because it's what seems to me to be part of the negotiations that's in between the lines as I read the stories. Not, uh, that has not um, been part of this conflict ever in the past. There has not been mass rape, mass sexual violence. Not on the Israeli side, not on the Palestinian side. There's been a lot of other terrible things, but there's never been that. And now we have started to see that for the very first time. And so the simple answer I would have given you three months ago is no way. That's not not, not a chance. It's simply not imaginable. That's not who we are. That's not who they It's just never been. It's never been in our great wars with huge dislocation and, and, and a lot of people that we've never had that. And now we have. So the simple answer is I don't know. I don't know how far Hamas has fallen. I don't know what Palestinian civilian, uh, in this particular case, of these particular civilians, I put that in, in quotation marks, who kidnapped people and held them in their homes. I don't know how far they will have fallen. So the simple answer is we, we can't know. We can't. Did we know that UNRWA was as corrupt? I mean, as completely infiltrated by Hamas as it's turned out to be. I hope they never get another dollar. But UNRWA has been revealed as an arm of Hamas. Did we know that before the war? We knew that. Everybody knew that. Everybody understood that the tunnels were being dug with aid money and aid supplies and aid concrete. Everybody understood that you can't get a job with UNRWA. UNRWA has 13,000 employees in Gaza. Not one of them can get that job if Hamas doesn't want them to. So it's not, UNRWA doesn't even have to be infiltrated by Hamas. We, we think it is, but it doesn't have to be. It's simply operating under a dictatorship that understands that this UNRWA money, $1.1, $1.2 billion a year in, in an economy like Gaza's, that is a vast amount of money. That, that obviously the mafia that runs Gaza is going to make sure to control that spigot. I mean, how could it not? It's an insult to our intelligence ever to suggest that it isn't profoundly shaped and affected and infiltrated and controlled on the ground by Hamas. And UNRWA doesn't seriously argue it isn't. UNRWA has actually, we've seen videos of Hamas gunmen take UNRWA um, uh, aid trucks as they go into Gaza. And UNRWA's official response is, oh, they're not stealing the trucks. They're helping the distribution and protecting the trucks from theft. Well, you know, Habib, I'm not a dummy, and I followed this region pretty well. I always thought UNRWA, while perhaps paying off and paying a a bit of... of, uh, a bribery to Hamas that they were not going to take up arms against Israel. I had I had a um, definitely uh, uh, shades on my eyes as to what they were, but they apparently were part of the killing spree, and that's different, right? That's when they've crossed the line from being uh, a useful idiots and accomplices to being terrorists, and they've done that. Let me say so. The small problem, and it is the small problem is that some number of UNRWA people, we have identified 13. We don't know if it isn't 60 or 300. We, we, we don't yet, I don't think it's 300, but certainly we've identified 13, it might be much more. The small problem is that these people actually participated as members of Hamas in the actual massacre of October 7th, in the kidnapping, in preparing uh, places for, for the kidnapped people to go. Um, they were just part of the atrocities of October 7th. That's the small problem. The large problem 
is that UNRWA allows Hamas to be the irresponsible guerrilla group it wants to be while also being the government it, it, it wants to be at the same time. In other words, Hamas attacks and hides behind civilians. A lot of guerrilla groups have done that in history. But Hamas alone in the history of warfare is an irresponsible guerrilla group that hides behind civilians and also controls the territory and the government and the economy. And so it does it on a scale no one has ever done before in the history of warfare. And how can Hamas be a guerrilla group that bends an entire economy to building this underground network that is twice as large as the London tube system and never actually be responsible for feeding and clothing and inoculating and, do, and, and, and teaching its population that it is the government of? And the answer is UNRWA. A great and big and gigantic problem and crime of UNRWA is the thing that it does that is so good on the face of it, but in fact allows Hamas to use all of Gaza as a military base and never actually be responsible for Gaza and place two million Gazans in harm's way. And that's literally its strategy for war fighting because it's a guerrilla group, but it can do so with two million people because it doesn't have responsibility as a government. And the reason it doesn't have responsibility as a government is that UNRWA has replaced it as a government in Gaza. Habib, I've also read conflicting stories on the amount of the tunnel system that has been destroyed. I've seen 20 percent. I've seen 50 percent. Yesterday, I saw a story that they've begun to pump in seawater. I saw the same story a month ago. What is your understanding about the tunnel system and its capacity, its operability right now? The tunnel system is many different parts and pieces. A lot of them are interconnected. Some of them uh, are not uh, under each town, under each village, um, under specific neighborhoods. Sometimes there's a single tunnel that connects two different networks. So it's big. It's complex. It's based on how they understood the needs that they would have when an enemy, mainly the Israelis, come into Gaza, how they would fight them. And so it's, it's, a, it's a big, vast thing. Um, the official Israeli um, estimate is between 20 and 40 percent is destroyed. That's a big range, 20 and 40 percent. And it reflects yeah. the fact that since going in, they've discovered sections and areas and scale, uh, tunnels large enough to drive a car through, that, that the intelligence understood quite a bit about the tunnels, but never imagined that. And so we discovered just how much Hamas has built and how astonishingly large that project has been. The seawater point is really very important because it's an engineering coup. It's actually a tremendous engineering success. We have managed to flood a small number of tunnels in ways that won't hit the aquifer, won't hurt the drinking water, and will actually make those parts of the tunnels uninhabitable. It's the safest way for the Israelis to flood tunnels uh, that we've yet found, and they're looking for many more ways to do it. The point is, it's going to be a long time. It's going to be a long grind in Gaza with a, a, a guerrilla war, you know, a, a counterinsurgency. It's going to be painful. It's going to be frustrating. And it's still going to happen. Coming up, the challenge as we look ahead. Hamas has run the education system for 17 years, and half of Gazans are under 18. A few more minutes with Haviv Redigur in the final segment of the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt when we return. Charlie Kirk here. It is critical we keep AM radio in all cars and all trucks. More than 80 million Americans depend on AM radio for news, weather, and opinions. AM is also the backbone of the emergency alert system, keeping you advised of threatening weather conditions and amber alerts. Text AM to number 52886. Tell Congress that we need AM radio in our cars. Again, text AM to the number 52886. Standard message and data rates may apply. 
Welcome back to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. Israel had barely begun their war with Hamas, and almost immediately critics of their conduct arose, and now we hear questions about when they're going to leave and pressure growing on Israel. What does Gaza look like on the day after is the most commonly asked refrain. We also saw the predictable talk of the resumption of talks for a two-state solution. That's actually not going to happen, and everyone knows that. Realists know it's not going to be a short contest, and it's decades, if not more, away from a two-state solution. Let's catch just a few more minutes of my conversation with Haviv Redigur. My father was in the Occupation Army of Imperial Japan, and he was—he only did eight months after the war, and then he was demobilized. But we were there. MacArthur was running it for five years, really, basically, until the South Korean conflict. Is anyone thinking realistically about how long Israel is going to have to stay there and get shot at by guerrilla forces? The defense minister in public, um, in a public speech, said it's going to be a long time. And after Israel won't control civilian um, issues in Gaza, it won't control Gaza, rule Gaza in that sense. But it will have security control for a very long time. And in the, under that Israeli security control will be the rebuilding. And, and that's something that is pretty clear. And as you say, that could take two years, three years, four years. The aspiration is to is to pull Israel out as quickly as possible. Hamas is gone. Moderate Arab world forces come in to not just rebuild, but de-radicalize. Hamas has run the education system for 17 years, and half of Gazans are under 18. And so half of Gazans literally were taught by Hamas. But those UNRWA schools are the majority of employees of UNRWA, and Hamas approves them, and the curriculum is in some importance, to a very important degree, set by Hamas. And so there is a process of de-radicalization that also has to happen in Gaza, um, and rebuilding, obviously, and all of that. So, you know, the intensive war fighting will take months. The counterinsurgency, the low-level counterinsurgency, much longer. And the rebuilding process will still see some Israeli involvement. So I don't think five years is crazy. I hope that five years isn't what isn't a war, because that that would be something. No, more like Iraq and, and the United States. Now, the Philadelphia line, Egypt has objected to Israel taking it over formally, but they actually don't object, do they? They'd rather you ran that than them, don't they? Egypt's position is very complicated. They're desperate for Hamas to be destroyed. They're desperate not to be left holding the responsibility in the eyes of the Arab world for the humanitarian crisis. And so an Israeli push to the Philadelphia line itself, which is the Gaza-Egypt border, would compromise the hundreds of thousands of Palestinian civilians now essentially who fled the war zones of Gaza and are basically trying to sit out the war in these safe zones those safe zones would become the battle zones. And so Egypt is very scared of that, wants Israel to understand that, and doesn't want to be seen with, you know, battles between Israelis and Hamas under the watchful gaze of Egyptian soldiers on the border who do nothing. It doesn't want that imagery. And so Egypt wants Hamas destroyed, absolutely. Thank you for joining us for the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. Catch up on our earlier episodes at our website, townhallreview.com. You can catch the full conversation between Haviv and me via my podcast, available at iTunes and on the Salem Podcast Network. If you like our program and our podcast, why not share them with a friend? Special thanks to executive producer Russell Schumann, producers David Bouchon, Alex Perez, Harley Eide, Adam Ramsey, and of course, Dwayne Patterson. I am Hugh Hewitt. Thank you again for joining us.
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.